Last day of the old year, 44 degrees in the shade. A purple mushroom cloud of bushfire smoke rises, ominous, ever-growing on the hill's face to the west. Malang Jetty bakes in mirage. No feet on the boards today, no birds. Too hot even for the kids and the fishermen. Everyone hunkered down out of sight. The piles stand deep, still in the lake at the end of the Murray, but the water's beginning to drop. New beaches peep out from the green of the shore and the boards are feeling uneasy, for they remember this happening before. And the beaches grew wide like those of the ocean and people said, great, they could walk their dogs. The big kids played cricket, the toddlers built castles, their mums and dads drank beer on the sand. Then out of the blue, the water was gone. Only silence around the piles, only the sting of the wind and the melancholy stench of dead freshwater mussel shells, thousands and thousands trapped on their dry, late-bed grave. Few feet came after that. No splush and squeals of kids, just ghost boards bare under the sky. Ghost boards again today, shimmering and dancing, deserted in the heat. The bad dream heat. Noonday nightmares of numb spirit nothing. Decay, desolation, relived anew. In this final episode of our Hot Summerland series, as February's heat shows no sign of abating, we're thinking about how we live and work with water. We'll give Western Queensland a quick phone call to see where the drought is up to and drop in on the top end and its questionable wet season. But we'll be mostly spending time on the tamed and locked Murray and Darling rivers to see how this watery food bowl of Australia works and what's sacrificed in its creation. On Milang Jetty in the Coorong, at the very mouth of the Murray River, Liz and John Yelland were watching the water retreat. New Year's Eve, dusk, carmine sunset glassing the bay. Shadow figures coming out, bare limbs lifted to cooling air. Family picnics on the lawns, canoes and sailboats, tourists, dogs. Shrieks and splashed bluish of kids, running feet, wet prints on the boards. Those noonday nightmares, at least for now, slide gently away. Out at the end, Charlie and his mate cast their lines. 49 on the back veranda today. Struth. Hot as December on record, they reckon. Yeah, and you know what that means. They'll be sucking out the water twice as much and twice as fast. And where's it going to bloody come from? Been stuff all rain in the catchment. Going on damn near two years now. They stand for a while in silence. Lights from the shacks, amber, green, white, wriggle reflections across the water. Somewhere over there, music playing. Smells of barbecued fish, sporadic snatches of song. How long do you reckon all this will last? asks Charlie's mate. 
for he, like the boards, remembers when the water went away. Australia's El Nino summer performed just as expected. Hot and dry, says Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology. We chatted in February as the summer showed no signs of making way for autumn. So things have got up to around about two and a half degrees above normal over a huge expanse of the tropical Pacific Ocean. And that's pumping a, a huge amount of heat into the atmosphere and changing the weather patterns. Look, it's been very dry, particularly up there in Mildura and so forth. We're seeing large parts of the Darling River getting very low, if not dry. The Murray, not so bad because, of course, it's feeding in moisture right across from eastern Victoria and eastern New South Wales, where they actually have had some decent rainfall. Um, Nindy Lakes are still suffering and, and not much water there at all, and so Broken Hill is suffering a bit of a water crisis at the moment. And, that's not really unexpected though with an El Nino. I mean, that sort of part of the world and, and the areas that feed into the Darling do typically get quite a hit during El Nino and particularly a strong El Nino like we've seen with this one. In mid-February, it's an unexpectedly moving experience visiting the deep green expanse of water at the junction of the Darling and Murray Rivers near Mildura at Wentworth. It's so significant, historically and economically, this river system. And it's 43 degrees in the shade, so this water is a welcome sight. But the sense of a vibrant, healthy river is an illusion. The Murray is a series of ponds, really, formed by 17 weirs and dams and interrupted by thousands of other man-made structures. They store the water that comes from the many tributaries of the river. It's then metered out to the farms along its length. Here we're surrounded by these farms, wine and table grapes, fruit and almond trees, and around them the dry, dry scrub that reaches towards the continent's centre. And as we know, much of the Darling is dry as dust, a victim of both drought and over-irrigation. Beyond that, of course, is disastrous. The people from uh, above that pool right through to Menindee are at desperation and they've got water full of algae, quite dangerous. So there's a whole raft of issues with that. I mean, uh, I'm with Howard Jones, uh, so a viticulturalist, irrigator and an environmentalist. At 72 years old, Howard's been involved in how the water's been managed for decades. He's chaired advisory committees and been on the board of local irrigation companies. And I'm curious. Practically speaking, how on earth is several thousand kilometres of natural resource divided up and bought and sold in the marketplace? So I go up to Western Murray Irrigation and get a form. I go onto the website to Murray Irrigation Limited. I look at a parcel of water that someone wants to sell and I choose that. So I ring up or email Murray Irrigation and I say I'll take that water. So I write out the cheque, I fill out the form and I can do it electronically or by fax or by snail mail if I want to. Irrigation farmers buy water on various licences, secure and general. It's different across the states and it's a complex and fascinating system. But to simplify, in New South Wales you can choose whether to buy a secure licence, based on the permanent water in the rivers, or a less reliable, cheaper, general licence, which is dependent on rainfall and snowmelt. 
Then go through state water to get deducted or added to the both licences. It'll come back to Western Murray and it'll be added to my licence. They'll then put it through. Oh, probably seven days to a fortnight tops. If I want permanent water, it's a bit longer. You can top up by buying water that other farmers have to sell on the temporary market. When times are tough, some farmers make their money selling their annual water allocation rather than their produce. At the time of writing, for example, it was $220 for a gigalitre. But in drought, the price has gone up to $1,300 a gig. I mean, the melons through this area here, most of them are doing it with temporary water. They know what the temporary price is. They get in, they buy their water early, and that's right out. I've got enough water to grow that many tonnes of melons, and that's what they do. And some young blokes around here are doing very nicely. They've worked it out. They're efficient. They can grow them, and they can sell them. Howard's now chair of the Murray-Darling Wetlands Working Group. It helps private landholders and Indigenous communities like the Barkindji Mora Elders Environment Team, known as Beemeat, to get water to their wetlands. Damien, where are we at the moment? We're at the back of Danton on Tucker's Creek. Just having a look at some mussels in the shell middens. Tucker's has always got water in it. All right. Yeah, it runs off the, the Murray into the Darling River. And there's lots of bits of shell and stuff around. Yeah, well, this is yeah, where the old people would have been you know, munching out, having their lunch and whatever, collecting stuff from the creeks. Damien Kennedy is programs manager at Beemeat, which is at Dareton in New South Wales. Getting water back to country is part of a focus on reconnecting with traditional lands that have long been altered by the irrigation which feeds the nation. You don't know how old it is yet? Well, this, this, in around this area, someone's done some carbon dating in this area. It's 15 to 17,000 years old. 15 to 17? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a long, long time ago. <laughs> well, your fish ecologists are looking a bit excited. Yeah, well, that's good to have them type of people around because, you know, we can't... You know, gave this information about you know, we haven't got the proper knowledge and the materials to do that type of stuff. So to have them involved, it helps us as a company and you know, traditional owners to this land, trying to protect it in a sense yeah. and educate our younger people and the community to feel proud to be able to protect something. We're out on the edge of a salt lake. As you can hear, the wind is relentless, but it helps with the heat. It must be close to 50 degrees under the full sun here in the scrub. And like just that first flow, just the change that it had on the on the country itself, like we all notice some things. You know, like the emus were nesting close to the water and you know, we hunt and gather. So we all get and feed our emu eggs along the creek close and you know. It made that much difference, the emus <coughs> came back. Yeah, a lot of things come back. We had um Mildura bird watchers come out and there was thirty something different species of birds come to the area that they were fascinated in and even the vegetation. Like a lot of the science crew were saying, you know, that it'll take heaps and heaps of flows before anything comes back. But the second flow showed, you know, that there was, you know, native plants regrowing again. Just like water, you need water. There were, of course, many different language groups who lived all along this river system, for the same reason the irrigation farmers have populated it. The indigenous history of the waterway goes way back, and it's sitting there, exposed as the soft soils are blown away by the ever-present winds. There are middens, mountains of shells, piled up by the side of the road, if you know what to look for. So what's significant about this spot? 
Yeah, all the different fire scattered fireplaces through. We'll go through and have a look. There are a lot, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Why do you think they chose this place for cooking? So many different fireplaces. Yeah, Probably just had a big gathering spot here from different tribes, you know, around the, around the lake and just meeting up here for a big feed and big dance up and one fired beef for, you know, all the women and then one fired beef for the men, then for the elders. They would have been very populated back here in the day. There would have been heaps of people out here running around because they've had plenty of food, plenty of water, you know, all the bush tucker out here and nice spot too it is. <laughs> Hot today nah. in the evening. But back here. then, when day was here, I reckon it wasn't like I can remember when 31 was hot. Now 45 burning, you know. Back, back, back then, it wouldn't have been that hot. Stuff out in the country, like wind and rain, it you know, reveals a lot of things, you know. Like some things come up that you know, it's a bit upsetting to see, but you know, we've, we've got our methods there to protect them sites. I heard about a burial site. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty there's a lot. Tough. There's a lot out here. We found found a number of um, burials. And there's a mass site. It was probably over 200. Just laying on the sand dune. It's all been covered up now, but we've fenced that area in. Our giant Eastern Australian watering system works pretty well, Howard thinks, especially with the massive changes to water efficiencies over the past decades. These have meant the Murray-Darling Basin Authority has bought water back from farmers and there's now some to give to natural wetlands. I'd uh, grab that utility over there, I'd put a four-wheel trailer that's got a 12-inch pump on it driven by uh, a diesel engine and I've got four or five lengths of heavy-duty pipe or suction as we call it. So I back the trailer up to the bank because the peg in the ground that the department said I can put my trailer and I can irrigate from, drop it into the water Filled up with fuel, put on the other side some flexible pipe and drop it into the wetland. It might be 100 metres away, it might be three kilometres away. Howard's passionate about this and it's both strangely ordinary and quite astonishing that we can manipulate the environment so simply just by pumping water across kilometres of country to the appropriate spot. So you will pipe water temporarily three kilometres? Yep. Normally in the soils here, they're clay soils, they crack. It's interesting to watch them when you're filling them. So you can see the water disappear down that crack and all of a sudden it'll come out bloody three or four metres the other side, followed by a bloody snake or a lizard or whatever else coming out and pushed out because of the water. You'd get billions and billions and billions of small plankton hatching out. Some would hatch out literally within a few hours, other ones would take a few days and other ones would take a couple of weeks to come out. It's just a seeding mass of plankton, which... Just, just plankton? Uh, well, plant seeds as well will come out and there'll be lots of aquatic plants, some terrestrial stuff, but a lot of aquatic stuff. I'm Paul Humphreys and I'm a, an ecologist from Charles State University, a fish ecologist. I work on, in rivers and fish. And what brings you here? Part of my research is trying to understand where we've come from to this point in time and how we've changed the river systems. And I found that the work that we normally do as ecologists is very short term. So I'm looking for sources of historical information and we have living history here with the Beemate group who have got that connection with the land and, and know about the history and then access to their ancestors' places where they lived and ate and, and discarded their the food. And so we can hopefully go back in time by looking into those fireplaces and see what they were eating in the past and tell us what fish were there. 
There are pitfalls in human intervention to these rivers and environmental flows. It's not so easy to recreate the right combination of boom and bust. And large bodies of water, like weirs and dams, can really mess things up. A weir will seep through its bed to the nearest lowest point, which is usually a wetland, pushing groundwater through the soil and bringing with it acid sulphate and salt that destroys the land. The lakes are pretty and pink and poisoned. So it's just natural hydraulics. That is your lens into the groundwater in this area, which you'll see today, and it's a lovely white to pink colour. But disastrous. Yes. You can't bring it back. No. And why was well, it...? Well, you could pull the Wentworth Weir out. OK, so it happened because of the weir. Yeah, and the same anywhere. I mean, everywhere you've got a weir, you've got an equal impediment in groundwater discharge, and it'll come out at the lowest point. Sometimes you can manage that by keeping it full, and that'll keep the groundwater down. And other places where you can't, some places you've got acid sulphate, we had one out of Bottle Bend, uh, which is upstream of Mildura. It historically had been wetted and dried, and we looked at it and it looked very nice and healthy. And we being uh, wetland specialists, we thought, well, if we drain that down, uh, let it dry out as it would naturally, it'll go back to its natural wetting and drying. Little realising, of course, that it was also a lens into the groundwater. So we dried it and it turned bright orange as we dried it down. We had people from all over the world coming to look at it because the first one they'd found in, in a freshwater system. And so what did that tell you about it? Well, the pH it? went from 7 to 2, so it was totally acidic hydrochloric acid. But it filled up our batteries with it. The Bee Meat team canoes up the Darling to inspect some simple constructions of timber that sit just below the water's surface. We call them fish hotels. <laughs> you go to the small-bodied fish, that's where they live. What's it made of? All wood. Yeah, just mallee wood. All good round pieces, yeah, about 200 mil thick, the roundness of them. Is it like a cage or a...? Yeah, like a, yeah, just a square tube, like a yeah, block. Why do you need it? Just for all the small-bodied fish to survive, because there's not much vegetation along the rivers these days, and all the steamboats would have took all the snags and stuff out of the river in the older days. So we're just going for a restocking so our native fish can survive somehow. Mm. Like recreating a snag in yeah, the yeah, in that's the creek. It. Yeah. So how many have you got in here? We've got one, another one up, just up further, and then yep. we've got another two, two around. Yeah, further. Mm. <laughs> uh, my name's Zachary Zachary Harris. I'm yep. a river ranger at Beemit. I've been working with Beemit now for the last eight weeks. And how are you finding it? Good, very good. Yeah. Something different to what I used to do. <laughs> yeah. What do you usually do? I was a Constructor, building constructor, yep. but this is more than more of a job for me. Yeah. On your own. Thanks. Hypothetically, why do we need to bring water to the wetlands of this river system and encourage fish and birds? After all, it's primarily used as a giant irrigation pipe, and insect control and fertilisation are managed with chemicals and technology. So, what's the point of fish hotels and living wetlands? I think there are several answers to that question. I mean, there are some more philosophical ones about our place in nature and stewardship and all that. But from a very practical point of view, the, the river would not remain viable in any sense of the word if it wasn't for all those animals and plants. So from a simple point of view, we'd have to chlorinate, essentially, the whole of the river and every dam in there to maintain the water quality if it wasn't for the animals and plants that exist in it. Or just maintain forested catchments around their water supply. It does the same thing. 
it's called ecosystem services if you want to look at it that way, is the river, the animals, the plants, everything in it provides this incredible service for humans and it does it essentially free. And all we need to do is manage it a little bit better and it'll continue to do that for free. At the headwaters of the Darling River system, on an ephemeral tributary called the Thompson, this summer's capricious northern wet season has treated the farmers roughly. In the first part of the Hot Summer Land series, I called up Jenny Gordon, who runs a sheep station with her husband 90 kilometres out of Longreach in western Queensland. So far, it's been a difficult 16 years of drought, with just a few years of respite amongst it. Jenny was in despair when I left her last, and as the season came to an end, it was time to call her again. And this time, the news was better, and every precious millimetre of rain has been counted. It was, it was a lovely feeling. It's just a feeling of relief and, you know, oh, this is the best we've had in a long time. You know, maybe this is the start. You know, is 2016 going to be a year? We've got 20 mils in our fall. Properties either side of us. 17 mils, then another property the other side of that got 35. So, you know, storms tend to split, and if you're in the, the middle of it, lucky you. If you're not, you, you know, you're going to miss out. So storms are storms. They're, they come and go and split and come back and do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. How does it sound now? Are you getting insects? Are you getting frogs and cicadas and things coming out? It certainly are. The flies have hit with a vengeance, so it's, it's back to the um, fly veils and sunglasses outside during the day. And the frogs at night, especially last night after rain, but, yes, the frogs are out, the, the moths are out, the, you know, the house is closed up and keep the outside lights on and the inside lights off. And, yeah, and that's certainly a sign that there's some grass on the ground. So now when you look out your window or head out onto the veranda, what are you seeing? It's, it's like a, a patchwork quilt. You see patches of, of lovely green and then you have your patches where, where the grass hasn't taken off and then interspersed in that is your grey stubble that may or may not be shooting from the base. But it's, so it's a patchwork of red from out the ground that's not grass to uh, green to grey, the odd tree and the odd... Whatever the... It's a lovely sight. It's a much better sight than it was when we last spoke, Gretchen. Before we farewell this El Nino summer, and as we wait for an unseasonably warm autumn to cool, let's head to the north of Australia. From Broome across to Townsville, it has an entirely different relationship to summer. Yes, the country burns, but not with the same damaging intensity as the forests to the south. And yes, the heat intensifies when the humidity leads to mango madness. And then the rain brings a healing touch of relief across a parched landscape. This year, though, it was different. And Oliver Coulter takes us to Darwin, where the rain fell and then it didn't. Everyone's a meteorologist. Methods lean towards the celestial, the superstitious. Locals in cans under breath perform tea readings on the skies. They speak of opposing seasons in reverential tones. Tropical lows take mythic proportions. A cloud's enough to start rumours. Some turn into backyard bookmakers. Seven to one it passes over. Others become gloomier than the skies, pessimistic until first drop. 
A subject maligned elsewhere. Here, conversations converge around weather. No need to read the latest research linking tropical heat to depression, stress, hostility. We are the control group. Sheet lightning flashes. So far away it appears without a sound. We watch it in detached longing. Rains close. The sky mumbles under its breath. But it's been known to break its word. Sweat through silent dinners and time ticks. We don't talk like we used to. It always takes you back. This cloying heat that crawls over skin. During El Nino wet seasons, we typically see less rain and also a later start to the northern wet season and the Australian monsoon. Now, we actually didn't see a later than normal start. It pretty much occurred about the normal time, if anything, maybe a, a week earlier. Just before Christmas, we saw it start to rain and saw the wind start to move around up around Darwin, and that's typically the, the start of the wet season. People got all a bit excited, but then, like I say, the rain's turned off and we've gone to quite a dry pattern. They're looking forward to another burst in the monsoon. At the moment, not looking like it's on the cards in the near future. Unfortunately, fairly typical of an El Nino wet season. Is the heat really two months deep now? That's twice as long as the year before, which was twice as long as the year before. It's true. The meandering heat stretches stories. You were worn when you arrived. Abandon hope ye singleted Dantes in this tropical inferno. The sky pops like a camera flash. Fans twirl ceremonially, oscillating hot air. Air thick enough to taste. Thunder rattles bones and window frames. Lightning shoots across the sky, revealing an endless orbit. Veins branching into more branches. An infinite conduit. A skybound root system. So vast, words become archaic as stone tools. This is a whisper of what this land can do to matchstick houses and the weathermen who make predictions inside. The weathermen, Oliver Coulter, Darwin, December 2015.